Hey there, beautiful people, and welcome to Articulating, a bi-weekly podcast that highlights the black and brown experience at independent schools. My name is Gina Parker Collins, and I'm an indie school mom, advisor, and founder of Resources in Independent School Education, where we focus on access, application, and enrollment in culturally responsive ways. Yay! And I'm Sam Osborne. I'm a RISE advisor and proud alum of a New York City independent school. I just completed my MBA from Wharton, and I'm now working as a management consultant. Testing prep expert Akil Bello was such a fabulous guest that we decided to publish a part two to the last episode. Grit and exceptionalism are frequently used in education to praise BIPOC students who face adversity. But what does grit actually mean? How much of it needs to be tolerated for our independent school scholars to prove their self-worth when it comes to higher education? We dig in and we're glad that you're joining us. Follow us on Instagram at Articulating. That's Artic period U-lating. Thanks for listening. So when we talk about this elitism that really exists with the whole college process and higher education and, you know, clearly with even with independent schools, and they're going to focus on other things that might determine success, they throw words out like grit. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about it. I'm just wondering if that is another elitist um, tactic. Uh, How do you measure grit, really? What does that really look like? How is that different between our black and brown students who I think every day are dealing with being gritty? They have to be gritty just to be in a space where they are among the numerical minority. So in terms of admissions, I think admissions offices have a hard job, no question especially at places that are in demand. And I specifically avoid words like elite and top because I think that for me, those words pertain to educational value and educational quality. And I'm not assessing that. You know, I think a lot of people are simply looking at the country club effect. And that means nothing about what happens once you get in the door. So I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's not the thing I'm talking about. Amen. So. I think that admissions offices at really popular places have a really hard job because my bet is 75, 80, 90% of the applicants have a resume, have a profile that shows they can do the work, which is, which in theory was the job that they were there, their admissions offices there to do. Let's admit people who show that they can do the work. Well, if everyone can do the work, then now how do you choose? So then now you get into things like institutional priority and crafting a class and, you know, what percentage male versus female. And now they get to do things like marketing. Oh, we want all 50 states represented. So South Dakota gets an advantage because, you know, ain't no people in South Dakota and they export the fewest. So all of these other secondary things start to play a role. And then you have those who feel excluded now getting mad because I didn't get in. Right. And now they throw out terms like merit, which often just boils down to test score. They're saying, I think I have a better test score, so I think I should get it, right? So admissions office have a really hard job of like navigating this entire process. And I think one of the things that starts to come about is asking applicants to make their case. The problem I have with terms like grit is typically it's associated with lower 
socioeconomic status. Poor kids have to show that they are gritty, right? Wealthy kids aren't asked to show grit. You know, poor kids, when they make a choice not to go to school X, but to go to school Y, they undermatch. Whereas wealthy kids, it's fit, it's social fit, right? So there's all these sort of negative framings around choices that are made by largely black and brown audiences that I find problematic. Well, I don't even know what, I, I'm never even 100% sure what grit means. What does it mean to you? <laughs> That's well, good... I know what grit means in my household. It means some butter, <laughs> some salt and pepper, you know. Love some <laughs> That's delicious. <laughs> so, the popular, right, so the term grit popu was popularized not long ago, maybe five years, I don't know. All the years blend because I'm old. Uh, it could be five, 10 years ago. One, a professor, Angela, Angela Duckworth. Duckworth. Yeah, mm -hmm. she, she did a whole thing and it became the cool phrase for a while, right? And there's been some pushback on it after that. But for a while it became, ooh, let's measure grit. Let's see how gritty someone is. And a lot of it was, was sort of about resilience, ability to tolerate BS and then move on with your life. Um, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying her technical words, but to me, that's how it read. Um, that's, no, that's clear and plain. Yeah. So, so, so it became a thing and I don't think it came from a bad place. I just think that the application of these things become problematic, especially when they're applied to, you know, to, to the social minority, right? Poor kids, first gen kids, black and brown kids who normally don't have access to these particular spaces. They go now prove your worth not academically necessarily, but in all the ways, tell me your trauma. What have you overcome? What, what, what grants you access to our elitist spaces? Right, and I, and I find those framings to be problematic. That's the token, that's the price. That's the, that's the exchange. Wow, yes. that is the exchange. If you have a story for us, that's, that's the level at which we are measured which is one reason I really enjoy Operation Varsity Blues, because it exposed that while I might have been admitted because I'm a poor Black kid, you bought your way in. So they wanted me, but you had to pay double to get in. You probably <laughs> shouldn't feel proud about that. Right? <laughs> like, I love the reframing. <laughs> so... So I'd be happy to be the kid on financial aid because you know what, that meant they, they paid me to come, but you had to pay extra. That is agency right there. <laughs> it is. I mean, how, how are they proving grit? So you talked about first gen. So there's typically a box to check about being first gen. Personal essay. How else are they, so, is someone to prove that they are gritty? So I don't know that colleges are necessarily looking for someone to prove grit, right? I think grit is one of a number of things that have been in the conversation around admissions on a lot of levels, right? Um, there's just these, these phrases that get tossed out periodically, grit, undermatching, you know, all of these things that are in the conversation of higher ed. I think what colleges are looking for is starting with, you know, evidence that you can academically do the work. And then they start shaping the class based on their institutional priorities. 
And that's where you hear things of like, you know, the bassoonist and the athletes and the leg, like they're shaping a class to fit institutional needs. They want some legacy students because some places believe that legacy means higher donations. So it's a money play, right? You know, I, I don't know if I would ever want my child to be admitted because they're a legacy student. I don't want my child to be in the eyes of the university, a, 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 like a money bag. They're like, oh, he's going to give some extra money at the end of it. Not only is he going to pay tuition, he's going to give us extra when he's out. Like, I don't know that that's a good thing. We heard from a, a legacy student uh, on NPR's forum yesterday who said, you know, um, I got in because of my dad, ended up going to law school at the same university. I didn't even want to go to law school. I didn't want to be at that school. And I, this spot could have gone to someone else. It didn't need to go to me because I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to be here, but I was forced to be here because yeah, that's, that's an interesting family dynamic. I also yeah. would push back on the beginning of that comment. I got in because of my dad. I don't think any institution is telling students that. I don't think any institution is, is fessing up and saying, oh yeah, we let you in simply because of your legacy status. Right, so a lot well, of actually, the, the actually, actually, one of the schools in their admission letter says that you are part of legacy here. Yes, but that doesn't say that that was the reason we admitted you. Mm. Well, okay, well, I right. I think that's that's the issue, right? And people conflate those things, right? Like, yes, you are a legacy student, meaning that someone in your immediate, you know, some immediate relation has attended here. But that doesn't mean you don't, you aren't top of the admitted pool. And I think that that's, that's part of the problem of admissions is that it's not particularly transparent. And therefore, a lot of the articles and media coverage you hear, people making claims about why someone is, was admitted and why someone else wasn't, when often that information is not there. I'm wondering, this is an independent school podcast. And you know, if you're BIPOC or of a lower socioeconomic status and you're attending an independent school, like the average independent school, to me, you have grit. I'm just, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think that there's, you know, you've, you, any sort of outlier in any space has done a whole lot to get themselves somewhere where a lot of peers didn't. And that says a lot. I think colleges are aware of school profiles and demographics and what it means. And if it's meaningful to them, they take it into account. If it's not, it's not. I think in the end, you, you have to do the work. I think a big thing that comes up around application time for these students is, oh my gosh, I have a lot of anxiety about getting into this highly selective school and my classmates didn't. My classmates probably think that I took their spot. I think that's that, white supremacy at its at its best. I mean, that's really just hitting you there, like your spot, meaning like right, I'm not even right. in the equation, and right. it's only supposed to be about you. I mean, mm. that is how pervasive white supremacy is. I even hate using that term, white supremacy, because it sounds so foul. But it is air. It is water. It's everywhere. It is life. Right. If you are in an independent school, 
largely you are already in a position of advantage and strength. You may not achieve the level that you wanted. Not everybody can get into Harvard. They are not accepting, they are not turning Harvard into Riverdale North. They are not turning MIT into Stuyvesant North, right? Like they're just not accepting 50 people from the same high school. So yes, there are limited spots from a particular high school, but I don't think it's a numeric limitation in most college offices. So I think families have to reduce the pressure that they put on themselves and the anxiety of one particular place. And this is one of the things that kind of makes me a little bit of an anarchist, as some people like to frame it. I don't have very much brand loyalty, and I am actually fairly anti-brand. Um, I, you know, I'm not going to buy the, the iPhone because it's popular. I'm actually more likely to not buy it because it's popular. And I think that there is a level of playing with the cool kids that comes into selecting institutions and selecting colleges to apply to. U.S. News has, has ruined college admissions. U.S. News is, is almost exclusively a ranking of historical wealth. Their first criteria, their largest factor in their ranking is is the uh, what they call peer survey. They ask other presidents, oh, which college is best? Like, how the hell is that a measure of educational quality? Or how's that a measure of anything, right? So part of it is there's this pervasive conversation, this pervasive belief of this is good, that's not good, this is best. And it's really a question of brand, right? Now, there is an overlap between brand quality in many cases and actual product quality we get obsessed with achieving certain level of brand recognition. And I think that if we back away from that and recognize there are lots of great institutions that help you accomplish lots of things, it makes for a more productive conversation. And you may end up at the same spot. You may end up saying, hey, I wanna be a nuclear engineer. So you end up looking at John Hopkins, right? Well, John Hopkins is highly rated anyway. So yeah, there's a lot of overlap between the quality and the, and the outcomes and the brand recognition but they aren't the same thing. What is the risk then of our black and brown scholars who um, are wearing Prada because they're in they're in independent schools and they decided, you know, I, I I'm shooting for Jimmy Choo right now, and they they put those shoes on. What what are some of the risks? I don't know if there is a real well. Okay, so I think that. Independent schools largely do a really good job preparing students for the next step, right? That's why they were designed, right? Like, like, you know, you don't see very many independent schools naming themselves college prep because that's the default understanding. Then my assumption is that if you go to a independent school, you can succeed academically at pretty much every college you go to right? You may not be admitted at every college you want to go to, but it isn't really a question of can you do the work, right? And so the risk isn't really about can I go and do the work? The risk becomes, is it worth the cost to me? And I think that it's a continuation of the conversations we've probably had when deciding on independent schools, is going into a space where I'm going to experience everything that came up in the in the Instagram black ads, right? Like, am I am I am I am what are the risks of of that social environment again? 
Mm-hmm. Right. And I actually have had conversations with students who are making their college decision where it's like, I'm like, put a number on the value of being in an HBCU for four years versus not. Right. And maybe you're like, hey, you know what? The not having to deal with being the only black kid in class for four years is worth 20 grand to me. Cool. Then if you got admitted to a highly rejected, predominantly white school, they better give you 20 grand in financial aid that the HBCU doesn't in order to make it worth it. Like you just put a number on those things, right? And see like, what is it worth to you? Um, because that's really the conversation, right? It's, it, at the end of the day, it becomes a conversation of financial and social consideration, right? I think that if that most of the students who get through independent schools are academically prepared for the experience, it becomes a question of all the other things. Well, that's a good plug for HBCUs, but if you are walking on campuses and comparing the two, there's a good chance that you are going to want to go to a place that looks familiar, even by way of resources. Uh, and I mean, that's just a fact because I see I see it happen, right? There's There's not enough that I can say, well, don't you want that different experience, right? Don't you want that different social experience where you're not one of a few, but you're among the majority? I, I even wonder if our, our independent school, many of them scholars can even handle that space. And that, so that's a whole different family dynamic there. And that's why ultimately what it comes down to is it's a family conversation, deciding what's worth it to you, what's valuable to you, what sort of experience you want to encourage that young adult to, to enter into. There's a, a huge lens on higher education. Um, people want to democratize it. People want to de-emphasize it as a path for children. Personally, I think it's really interesting that the numbers aren't great for uh, racial numerical minority, but the, the more access we have to it, now the, the goalpost is moving. Where, what's your stance on, you know, this de-emphasis on higher education now? I think there's, again, I think it's really important to be careful about who you're listening to. So a lot of the you don't need a college degree crowd is the hyperbolic right-wing folks, um, you know, or the millionaires, you know, Peter Thiel or whoever it is, you know, like his kids are in college and he's like, yeah, you don't need to go to college, right? <laughs> so it's like, mm, it's a little shady, right? I think that we have to define what pathway we want. I definitely think that corporations de-emphasizing the role of higher ed credentials and higher ed degrees is a good thing. There are some job postings I've seen out there where it's like, we want our window washer to have a master's of education so that they can make $13 an hour. There's very little you would actually learn at a college that would be necessary to the performance of that job. So de-emphasizing the arbitrary reactive requirement of degrees is probably a good thing, right? Computer coding, you can probably, like, they can give, you know, as much as I hate tests, computer coding seems like a place where it's like, oh, I need you to code. Let me just bring you in for an hour. Here's something coded in an hour. Let's see how it works. Done. You get the job or not. That seems like real simple. You could take the gamer who's in his mommy's basement, who's never been to high school, and they might be a fabulous coder, right? So I think that in some of these positions, requiring a job, uh, requiring a degree is pointless. 
the unfortunate part about this is most teenagers have no idea what they want to do. Right? So who gets dissuaded from creating greater opportunities for themselves by being told don't go to college? And I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. I think that I'm not going to dissuade, especially any body who is part of an underrepresented group from going and pursuing a degree that opens more doors. You can always have a degree and not use it. I have a bachelor's of architecture, which I have done absolutely nothing with. But holding a bachelor's opens the door to some jobs that I otherwise would not be able to apply for. I could still go work at McDonald's if I want to. I could still be a carpenter if I want to. So holding a degree doesn't stop you from doing that. Now, what might stop you is the debt you accrue getting that degree. So I think those are separate conversations, right? Is it worth paying that much for that degree versus is it worth having a degree? I think those are different conversations that we have to separately tackle. I do think there's a limit to how much debt I, you should take on. Well, you're right. That debt is, is, is crazy. I mean, in addition to opening up doors, what is the virtue? What is the virtue of a good college education? Like what... What is it that opens up those doors if it's not just the brand? Is it your ability to, to think differently, to be more critical? What is it? I mean, education, right? I think it's the virtue of education, period. The more you know, the, the, the more experience you have thinking and reasoning and learning and understanding stuff, the more opportunities you're ready to take advantage of. The question becomes how much of that education needs to be formalized. There's a difference between learning education and training. College is generally in a lot of fields, not career training, it's education, right? And I think that people often conflate and, and misunderstand those differences. Now, you know, if you go back far enough, college was sitting around under a tree talking with, you know, learned individuals, right? Whereas like you weren't learning how to do a thing. Some fields, you're actually learning things like engineering. For one, you are learning specific theories and, and rules and formulas and stuff like that, which is a very specific thing. Whereas if you're going for English, it's not quite the same. Yeah, it took that apple falling from the tree and hitting your head to like, right. you know, <laughs> put you in the right mindset. So perhaps, you know, maybe graduate school, right? Sam, you went on to, to business school, you know, it's like you keep going that next step for, for more training, right? And more preparedness. When I think of undergrad, it is just an, it's an experience. It's, it's an opportunity to begin to feel what adulting could be like, right? It's an education. Um, and, I, and I think that that's the conversation that needs to be had, right? Is like, okay, what do we want to do? I think like as much as possible, you want to work backwards. What's my end goal here? What do I see myself doing in the future? The plans may change, but at least I start with a plan and then I can break off and change and go in different directions, right? Uh, it's one of the reasons for the MBA that most people who are going to, or many people who are going to for MBAs, they don't get it straight out of undergrad right? They work, they experience the workplace, they understand what they start to get a sense of what they want to do with their career. And then they use the MBA to take them more laser focused, more strategically towards that end game, right? It's real hard to ask a 17 year old, what do you want to do for the next 12 years of your life? Good. Let's set a plan to do that. Right? But that's kind yeah. of what I'm praying becomes. now because you know, you know, mine is on its way to his freshman year and I'm just it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Well, what more can, for that 17-year-old child, what more does 
college admissions, college, independent schools, what more can they be doing to support that child and their decision-making? Especially BIPOC, especially lower socioeconomic. Right. I think what, let me, let me take it away from the school and to the family. Because I think the school generally creates decent program, most schools, many schools, right? They create programming around your next step. And that's sort of the goal of independent schools. They're, 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 they're sort of fairly well-focused on college. So they're creating programming around that. I think that what families need to evaluate and support is, A, how much college exploration support is offered and how early, right? B, how much career exploration is offered and how early, right? And that's, those are the things that I'd be looking at thinking about what do, you know, what do you want to do at the end of the day? What fields are you interested in? What, what courses and tools and experiences and internships and summer classes might be interesting to help you explore these things that you might want to do in your life? And I think that's what the family wants to do to support the mechanics of college applications. I think schools do a fairly good job around the mechanics of college applications, independent schools especially, right? I think families have to make sure that they're adding to and supporting the exploration of interests, career, all of those sort of things, which the school will supplement, but I think is a little bit beyond their purview often. Well, I feel like a I feel like a great parent. Let me pat myself on the back because <laughs> you are that exploration point uh, is real. But just being there as a parent, being involved, being invested, being excited, and exploring, and allowing our children to make some decisions, holding them accountable for this investment we're making, right? Um, because listen, my mom said the first time you mess up, you're paying for college tuition. So I, I just I've passed that down. That's part of my family lineage now you know I'll pay for it until you act like you want to pay for it and I think parents every parent listening to this podcast is doing a great job you're doing the work man you're doing yes. like Absolutely. listen like I'm like should I be doing test prep with my kid now <laughs> like I like I'll tell you that I'm not doing test prep with my kid I have a 10th grader. I am not doing test prep with my 10th grader. And guess what? It's real easy for me to do test prep. I got 17 SAT books sitting probably within reach of my hand right now. Could I do it? Yeah. Am I philosophically opposed to doing it in 10th grade? Somewhat. Have I thought about doing it yet? Yeah, like I made him do 20 questions not long ago, but mostly because it aligned to what he was doing in his math class. And I knew I could open the page in the ACT book real easy and say, hey, here's exponent questions just like you're doing in school. Let me just see what you can do with them. So give them a little soft entry into that, right? Like, I think we all have access to different things that the more we provide, the more we provide to our children, the more access and understanding they'll have. Yeah. So we all do what we need to. And I think that if we listen to stuff like this, if we listen to other parents, we find out as much as we can, we supplement as much as we can, you know, things will generally work out. And all things rise. Now all things articulating. And we're really excited for folks to hear this podcast. You impart a lot of knowledge. And at the end of it all, let's just not take this so seriously. So at the end of it all, we just need to take a deep breath, stay calm, find the right school, stay calm, follow a keel, and um, 
and we'll be we'll be good we'll be good all right thanks for having me that was beautiful gina wow did you like how i wrapped that up yeah (laughs) i I have a hard stopping four minutes If you enjoyed this discussion, please pass it on to a friend and don't forget to hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram at articulating. That's at artic period you lading. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>